I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Today, we're bringing you the inspiring story of Ray Montalvo and his struggle for survival in a country he once treasured as a prisoner of his own government, which would later lead to his rebirth as a proud American citizen and successful entrepreneur. Here's Madison with his story. Ray Montalvo's story begins in the city of Havana, Cuba. Living in Havana was like living in the most gorgeous city that you could ever dream to be. Havana was like Paris. They, they had the big cabarets. They had beautiful shows at night. We uh, party a lot. <laughs> the, the nightlife in Havana was unbelievable. You won't believe how good it was to live in Cuba. Life started at 10 o'clock at night. People sleep a siesta. They work a little in the morning and then took a nap. They go back to work about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They had the beaches, the sports, had the nightclubs, had the restaurants. It, it, it was a different world before the revolution, of course. My family went too relaxed. We didn't participate in the country. And that was a mistake. Because when we don't, it turns over to the bad people. And that's what happened in Cuba. Castro was a student at the University of Havana. He was in law school. I was a freshman and he was a senior. He was a strange guy. Talk a lot, talk, 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 talk. He could talk for hours. He was not my favorite guy, of course, 
He was a troublemaker. He liked baseball. He was number one in baseball, number one in basketball. And I remembered going back to the dormitory and he was playing, throwing the ball and basketball. Dedicated to that. I mean, you couldn't believe how dedicated it was to be the best in those sports. Never talked about socialism. Never, never. My granddad had bought a lot of property in Havana, which is the main city of Cuba. He did very well with uh, rental houses, and that's what uh, my dad inherited, and he did very well, too. My family was wealthy, and they had given me a brand new station wagon, and uh, I got involved in a brewery. I buy some stock, and in the meantime, Castro came in. I drove to the brewery one morning. They stopped me and they got me out of the car. I says, get out of there. You don't own that car and you don't have no business here. The people of Cuba own this now. You're not part of this anymore. So they took him out of my new car. Uh, he confiscated the brewery. He confiscated all the properties from my dad. So we were penniless. We took the cars and I took everything. We made a steel box and welded and dug a hole in the backyard. There were very expensive guns in there. So uh, I think they found it because I understand that they went with metal detectors and they found out. I don't know that they, they found it, but I'm sure they did. They were confiscating oil, they were confiscating houses. You know, every business that, that, that was bright in Havana, he was confiscated. Anything that had value, he was confiscated. One of the things that happened was the militia came to our house and they gave us a certain time to leave. It was soon after that that my dad and I were able to sneak out and leave when we came exiles. It really was not an easy process, of course. Very uncertain. I had a few bucks in my pocket. My dad didn't have anything. My dad was old. So we came through uh, Miami. We were welcome. They helped us out very, very much. We uh, waited another week. We moved then to uh, New Orleans, where my first wife was born, and she was protected by the American Embassy. Soon after he moved to New Orleans, Ray got word about the group being formed. Brigade 2506, they were training to overthrow Castro. I wanted to join right away. I told the family, I'm going to join in this. It was a big cry, and, but I finally I joined and went back from New Orleans to Miami and joined the Brigade 2506, Bay of Invasion. I was going to fly a plane, but I broke a leg, so they put me in the marching. That was very smart of the guys <laughs> with a broken leg to be in the marching group. So anyway, we left. By the time we got to Cuba, we were expecting that everything was going to be a piece of cake. We're going to win this easy. We got the U.S. Air Force behind us. But very much to my surprise, the first plane that we saw was shooting at us. So that's not the way they told us it was going to be. Our luck changed bad. The future that I thought I was going to have changed bad, too. He said, there is no future here. I'm lucky if I get out of here alive. And you've been listening to Ray Montalvo tell the story of life in Cuba what it was like before Castro and the revolution. He remembers Havana being a beautiful city, a fun city, a city where you could work hard and then play hard. It was a city to party. And, well, everything changed. The party ended when Castro and his revolutionaries seized everything. As Ray said, they were confiscating oil. They were confiscating businesses, confiscating land. Anything of value, they were confiscating. The future I thought I was going to live changed. And indeed it did. And when we come back, how it changed 
The story of Ray Montalvo continues here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to politics to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we return to our American stories and to Ray Montalvo's story. When we last left off, he had just entered a situation that he was not prepared for, being shot at by Cuban planes during the Bay of Pigs invasion. The date, April 17, 1961. We got in a boat, we were expecting a sure victory, and we can see destroyers, air carriers, but they wouldn't do anything. And here come the Cuban plane shooting at us. Oh, that's something wrong here, that made a mistake. And we were able to shoot one down with rifles. Castro didn't have that many airplanes, but we were able to get out of the boat, sneak at night, and we finally got to Bay of Pigs. I was in a group of six, by the time we got to Bay of Pigs, all the boats were gone. Castro didn't expect us there, but he had good mobility. Castro already had the forces coming in. So my plan was to swim at night with the other six guys to a town called Cienfuegos, but it was quite far. There was no food, there was no good water. You had to get a uh, crab and suck the water out of the legs. That was the only fluid that we could drink, and we hunt crabs all we could, as long as the soldiers were not around looking for us. Maybe we went 10 miles maximum, and we really had to go like 50 to go to where I wanted to go. Castro had soldiers in boats right there on the coast, so you couldn't go too far before you saw one of those boats and do high backing. I got caught sleeping in the woods. I was woken up with a rifle in the head. And I said, my God, what's gonna happen here? I was in a dream. And I thought, these guys are gonna cook us. They're gonna eat us. <laughs> I thought they were cannibals. But we were in bad shape when we finally were captured. We were brought back to a small town in the southern part of the island. But that time, Eleanor Roosevelt has offered to trade prisoners for tractors. So we became a good commodity to Castro. That was not approved by the State Department. So once that failed, our luck changed a little bit. Castro offered, if you can pay so much for the head of this guy, you can get it free. They put prices by your status, being a wealthy family, I put a price on my head about half a million dollars. Ray's family began asking around for help to try and come up with enough money for his release. But I said, don't send any money. I came here for a cause and I wouldn't accept. I never loved my face to know I was going to free again. From there is when they brought us to the Spanish fortress called Castillo del Principe. It was an old, old fortress built by the Spaniards in 1600. They divided the prisoners by what wealth your family had. So uh, I ended up in the wealthy cell. And you think that I was the best, but I was the worst. Castro would come in the middle of the night, Castro himself, and said, what's, what's happening here? You have bad food. Yeah, I got to improve. Well, the thing didn't improve. They got worse from there on. They began to even cut the food, and the food was terrible. The guards, they would shoot at the windows to scare us. 
Some of the prisoners got sick. We have a hepatitis. And the family began to send medicine. Well, Castro confiscated all the medicine. They had this big speakers in the cells, you know, people from sleeping. We, we had guys that lost their mind. I remember there was a poor guy. Uh, they, they gave him electrochucks and things and that didn't help him. It took 21 months to realize that something was being worked uh, by the families to get us out of there. The last two weeks, he thought something is happening and it's going to be good. The food improved. And we got new clothes. And for the first time in 21 months, I saw a piece of meat. And they began to be a, a little nicer. They, they stopped shooting at the windows. I said, well, what's going on here? Well, we realized that they had negotiated to get us out of there. The negotiation was $69 million cash. Cash. Castro wouldn't take anything but cash. They began to send Red Cross airplanes. And in those planes came the cash. One by one, the prisoners were set free, the ones from wealthier families being the last. I got finally lucky, got in the last plane. Seeing the, the whole family waiting there. It, it was quite an emotional thing after 21 months in, in, a, in a prison camp. Seeing the kids and Lillian was the youngest one, began to cry. Says, I, I love you, but you're so ugly. <laughs> you look so bad. <laughs> I, I left uh, the prison weighing 98 pounds, and I normally weigh about 170, so you can't imagine. How, how bad it was. Ray stayed in Cuba just one more night, and then he realized something. I realized that I always wanted to be American. If you live in Havana, there was a ferry boat. You put your car in there, ended up in Key West, get out, go shopping, get back on Sunday night, and go back to Cuba. It was not like being here. So, I knew the life of this country, the things that the country offered, the freedom. There's no place to go like the United States. It doesn't exist. Upon his arrival to the U.S., Ray was met with some exciting news from the government. I heard that if you were a member of the Biopix, you could become an American citizen or join the army. So I thought I would like to become an American citizen. They met me the next day, they went in an American consulate, and I came back with an American passport. I was very proud of that. After gaining his citizenship, Ray immediately started searching for a job. One day I found this job that they were looking for a bilingual person. I didn't know how to talk English very well, very bad. Applied, interview was in Spanish, and they hired me. And one of the big jobs was to fix a fish vessel. So I had enough of this. I began to smell like fish. I kept on looking for something better. Ray endured a few more interesting jobs until he realized he could once again have a family business this time here in the United States. So I bought a piece of land and that was the first Macomb diesel. Had a few problems to make it go. We had heaters out of kerosene. We couldn't afford electric heaters, but we survived that. We grew that building and we gained and began to grow, grow, grow. And every day is really and truly been a good day. And by every day, well, he means every day. Ray is now 90 years old, and he still goes to work seven days a week. And that's at the business that he built up just shortly after becoming an American citizen. And it doesn't happen in any other place in the world that you could do that. 
He come with our speaking the language and have all the facilities to open and, and be able to grow. It's a miracle I'm sitting here. Because uh, I remember a Bay of Pictures when I have an airplane shooting and it's, the bullet stopped right where I was. So it's a miracle. <laughs> and great job as always by Madison. And a special thanks to Ray Montalvo. It's a miracle I'm here, he said. The story of Ray Montalvo here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with Our American Stories. And up next, well, a little piece of American history. Historical truths often emerge with time. Early on, a hush descended over the 1692 the 1693 Salem witch trials. Then came playwright Arthur Miller, who made off with the story, or at least his version of it. Since 1953, The Crucible has become the culturally accepted storyline that has come to define American Puritans. Dr. Stephen Nichols is president of Reformation Bible College, chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries, and is the author of Jesus Made in America, a cultural history from the Puritans to the Passion of the Christ. He's here to tell the story of the Puritans and the Salem Witch Trials. Here's Stephen Nichols. Well, as we look over American history, probably one of the groups that is misunderstood the most is the New England Puritans. Most of what Americans know about these New England Puritans, we have read in high school in two books. Uh, The first is Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic text, The Scarlet Letter, and then there is Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Uh, Neither of these books paint a very flattering portrait of the Puritans. The Scarlet Letter portrays the Puritans as a bunch of hypocrites, as self-righteous, as mean-spirited people who are just full of gloom and doom. Though you show no modesty in your apparel, Yet you have a chance still to repent your sins. Uh, The hero of the story in Hawthorne's book is one who actually subverts the community and subverts the sort of framed narrative that governed that Puritan community. And then we find uh, Miller's play, The Crucible. I want to open myself I want the light of God. I want the sweet love of Jesus. I danced for the devil. I saw him. I wrote in his book. I go back to Jesus. I kiss his hand. I saw Sarah Good with the devil. I saw Goody Osborne with the devil. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. I saw Jacob with the devil. She speaks. She speaks. Glory to God. It is broken. They are free. Arthur Miller wrote this in 1953. It was a very uh, gossamer-veiled criticism of McCarthyism and the purges and the Red Scare of the 1950s. And as people were in that era, speaking of the witch hunt that was going on in McCarthyism. So Arthur Miller turned his attention back to that uh, original witch hunt back in Salem. So the result of, of coming to know the Puritans uh, through the Crucible, through the Scarlet Letter, is that the Puritans have come to most Americans with a bad reputation. Uh, to be puritanical is certainly not a compliment. It was H.L. Mencken uh, back in the 1920s who said that anyone who thinks that somewhere, someone might just be having a good time, that's a Puritan. So what are we to make of all this? And and more importantly, what are we to make of the New England Puritans? Uh, first, who were they? Uh, the New England Puritans came from Old England. Uh, the Puritans themselves were essentially legislated into existence. This was under the reign of Queen Elizabeth and her Act of Uniformity from 1558. It intended to bring conformity to the religious culture of Great Britain. This was in the wake of the Reformation. There was a great divide between Catholicism and Protestantism and England. Elizabeth needed a united country to withstand Spain and Britain's enemies. And so she enacted the Act of Uniformity. Well, there was a group that dissented and uh, they were technically called non-conformists because they would not conform to the Church of England. 
One of the things they stressed was the nature of the church. Uh, They believed that the church should consist of not simply those who were baptized, but those who also believed the gospel. And they also believed in an idea that we call visible sainthood. Uh, That is to say that the church should be made up of professing Christians who, well, who act like Christians. And so immediately this group, these nonconformists, were criticized. Uh, They were given a name of derision, and so they were called Puritans. Not a name they gave themselves, but a name that their uh, enemies gave to them. They were seen as holier-than-thou people. Well, we fast forward to King James I, and he did not like the Puritans at all. Uh, It was uh, King James who, who quipped, I shall make them conform, or I will harry them out of my land. Well... He couldn't make them conform, and so eventually the, the Puritans left. Uh, the first group was the Pilgrims. This is the group that landed in 1620. They, they came on the Mayflower, and this group formed the Plymouth Colony. Uh, the more properly Puritans came in 1630. They set sail on the Arbella, and when they landed in the New World, they formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was really during that decade of the 1630s that there was a great migration of Puritans to the New World. Almost each week, a a new boat would arrive and would dock there, and it would bring in a whole fresh group of Puritans. Uh, The Puritans in New England formed a government. They they carved a a society in what was, uh, as they called it, the howling wilderness of New England. And even after just six years of being there, they founded a college, the first college in the New World. Of course, this is Harvard. And so we can take a look at this first generation of Puritans, and and we can see what they were truly about. Uh, One of the things that we see is that they loved learning. Uh, Not only did they establish Harvard, but they were very much for literacy uh, for their children, and they Uh, loved learning, all learning. These Puritans had a very substantial, what we would call today, a classical education. Puritans were very industrious people. They had an incredibly impressive work ethic. And within that first generation, establishing towns and trade networks and establishing all sorts of uh, institutions and churches and and schools and colleges uh, there as they carved out this community and this society for them in New England. Well, this brings us, of course, to that subject of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, and that subject is the Salem Witch Trials. These witch trials occurred from 1692 to 1693. Now, to to understand these, we need to sort of take a step back and and look at a broader sort of European context and also look at the context of some of the the ideas that really were behind uh, the Puritans. So when we go back uh, to Europe, uh, we see that witch trials go, of course, back into the Middle Ages. But in the wake of the Reformation and the, the Roman Catholic Church's establishment of the Inquisition, there was an intense time of witch trials. This went from about the 1570s or 1580s on into the 1630s or 1640s. It's estimated by historians that tens of thousands of witch trials occurred over these decades and that many were executed. The numbers range anywhere from lower end estimates to about 50,000 people to upper end estimates of 100,000. Uh, were executed as as witches. Across Europe, pretty much every single nation had a law on the books against witchcraft, and it was also an offense that was a capital offense. So if one was found guilty, they were punishable by death. So we have that context in Europe. And you've been listening to Dr. Stephen Nichols when we come back more on the Salem Witch Trials and the American Puritans here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories, and we just heard Stephen Nichols talk about the European witch trials that executed an estimated 50 to 100,000 people all over Europe. Let's return to Dr. Nichols, who will pick up the story from there. As you come to the New England Puritans, uh, the, the different colonies, the Massachusetts colony, also had laws on the books against witchcraft. And as with their European counterparts, this was also considered a capital offense. 
With a lot of that as context, now we can talk about the, the trials themselves. I think the first thing we have to say is these were wrong. The judges of the trial were wrong. The townsfolk who accused these folks of witchcraft. This whole episode of the Salem witch trial is, is not something we want to make an excuse for or certainly not something uh, we want to say is inconsequential. It was very consequential, and it was wrong. But having said that, I think it's always important for us to actually take a look at what happened and to try to do as much justice as we can uh, to the event itself. So we look now at the, uh, at the trials. Everything seemed to start in the winter of 16. 92. And it was started with two young girls. Uh, one was just nine years old and the other was 11 years old. One was the daughter of the minister there in the village of Salem. And now, these days, the village of Salem is, is Danvers, Massachusetts. But the daughter of the minister and a niece of the minister, and they had these episodes of, of what you would just call severe fits, convulsions. Uh, they'd be writhing on the ground. They'd be making strange sounds. They, they were examined by the medical doctor, and there seemed to be no medical reason, or at least as they could at that time, discern a medical reason. And so they looked for another explanation. And very quickly, the fingers all started pointing to a slave that was in the home. This was a Caribbean slave from Barbados. Her name was Tichuba. And these young girls accused her of witchcraft. And alongside of Tichuba, there were two women in the town. Uh, one was a widow and, and from what we can understand was essentially sort of a homeless beggar. And the other was also sort of in that category as, as one, I think one historian uh, referred to these ladies uh, named Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Uh, he called them social misfits. But as they looked at Tichuba and Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, uh, they said these were witches and they had put these girls under a spell. Well, course, they were questioned. Tichaba actually confessed that she was a witch, that the devil had come to her, that the devil had uh, seduced her, and that she did practice, in fact, uh, witchcraft. And now we sort of see how things begin to spread within this town. There were trials, and, and the event just sort of snowballed out of control. People if they would question the testimony of these girls, they would then be accused of witchcraft and they would be arrested and, and brought into trial. And then others uh, just started turning on each other and turning in each other. These trials went on uh, from 1692 through 1693. Over the course of these trials, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 200 people were at one time or another arrested. And, and of those 200 people, 20 of them were executed. So all but 20 were released, but there were, in fact, 20 that were killed. They were hanged, all, all except for the instance of one, and they were sort of hanged at, at particular times. The first execution came in July 19 of 1692, and then another group was executed on August 19th, of 1692, and then again on uh, September 22nd. Of those that were killed, there were 14 women, but among them were in fact six men. And often what had happened in these trials was that if someone actually confessed to being a witch and, and would repent, well, they would be released. And so the ones who maintained their innocence because they weren't witches and they cared about their reputation and their name meant a great deal to them. So they would maintain their innocence. It was those, in the case of the 20 of them, that were executed during these trials. Well, how did all this come to an end? A key figure in all of this was uh, Increase Mather. Increase Mather is, is probably of what we might call Puritan nobility. Uh, he's both of the Mather family and of the Cotton family. He was, in fact, in, during the time of the witch trials, he was president of Harvard. As the trials were beginning, he was back in Old England petitioning the king to get a new charter for the colony. 
And actually, it was it was during this time that uh, Simon Bradstreet, that of course is the husband of the poet Anne Bradstreet, Simon Bradstreet was installed as a governor again in 1692. And as governor, he actually put a stop to the trials. He was not very pleased with what was going on, was not aligned with it. And so he just sort of hit the pause button on it to keep any more trials from happening. Well, eventually Increase Mather comes back, a new governor is put into place, and the tribunal is set and the trials commence. From the very beginning, Increase Mather and other ministers across Boston and across Massachusetts cautioned Salem to be cautious uh, as they looked at evidence, as they made decisions, to not be rash in their judgment and to weigh the evidence as you would in any court case. And uh, increasingly, that was set aside, and the trials there at Salem uh, focused on what was called spectral evidence. So maybe someone was testifying uh, that, you know, they had seen one of these persons that was accused go off into the woods and practice witchcraft. And then all of a sudden during the trial, they would just sort of point to the person and say, look, there's a witch above the person. Well... Of course, you can't verify that, right? And so that's the spectral evidence. And it was on a lot of those kinds of evidences that the judges, nine of them in total, overseeing Salem would make their decisions. Well, when Increase Mather heard about this, he just wanted to put an end to this and stressed uh, in no uncertain terms that this was not biblical and that uh, these folks, these judges, needed to conduct themselves and carry about the law in a way that was uh, biblical and reject this notion of spectral evidence. And so thankfully, uh, that brought these Salem witch trials to an end. Uh, A really crucial story here is the story of Samuel Sewell. Samuel Sewell was one of the nine judges, and he sat on the court, was part of the Salem witch trials. Uh, But later, uh, he was convicted of this. He repented of what he had done. In his own testimony to how he came to this realization, he says that he was reading a biblical text. He was reading Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. And that text tells us, if you know what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And Samuel Sewell just felt the weight of that verse, and he realized that what he had done uh, back in 1692 and 93 was that he had condemned the guiltless, that there were those that were executed that were not witches. And um, when he realized that he had relied on bad evidence in making that decision, well, he repented, and he published a book that he just simply called his apology and uh, spread it widely. Sewell then just committed himself to calling a day for fasting for the entire colony of Massachusetts for what had happened at Salem. He worked almost tirelessly for reparations and for restitution of the accused. It's also fascinating that a few years after this, in 1703, Samuel Sewell wrote a book against slavery, and he called for its abolition. So, you know, Sewell's one of those figures who, who often just gets associated with the Salem witch trials, and then he just sort of gets written off as one of those bad guys in the pages of history. But you know, there's little doubt uh, that the Salem witch trials was a difficult moment uh, for Puritanism in New England, and, and you don't see much recovery of Puritanism after that. And so here we have this time period, you know, of, of 60, 70 years of the New England Puritans. And it's easy for us, you know, I think we read Hawthorne again, Scarlet Letter, we read Miller, The Crucible. It's easy for us to sort of just look back on these folks and sort of dismiss them and uh, judge them, you know, for quite frankly being wrong. Uh, But I think we also owe it to them to to look at the full context of the Salem Witch Trials. And when we do, uh, again, we just see a fascinating uh, bunch of folks uh, who were very pivotal, very integral to the founding of what would become America and uh, very much a part of the American story, uh, these American Puritans. And a great job as always to Greg Hengler and a special thanks to Dr. Stephen Nichols, who is the president of the Reformation Bible College and the chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries. 
the complicated and rich history of America as always told here on Our American Stories. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.